following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. But she wanted to get a feel for how knowledgeable her students were with regard to the scriptures. So she just said, so can someone tell me here what, what's Easter all about and why it's so important? And one of the little children raised her hand and she says, oh yeah, Easter, that's, that's when the whole family gets together and they sing a lot of songs, they have a big turkey, and it's just a wonderful time. And the teacher says, well, that's, that's a really important day, but that's not exactly what I'm looking for. And someone else raised their hand and says, oh, I, I know what Easter's all about. That's when, when everybody gets together, sings lots of songs, has lots of wonderful food, everybody gives each other gifts, and we all decorate this beautiful tree in the living room. And the teacher says, well, that's a really important day too, but unfortunately that's not what I was thinking about. Another student raised her hand. He says, I know what Easter's all about. That's when Jesus died on the cross for us, and they buried him in a tomb for three days. And the teacher thought to herself with a smile, finally, somebody in this Sunday school class knows what Easter is about. And the student continued on and said, and then after three days, everyone gathers around to see if Jesus is going to come out. And if he comes out and sees his shadow, that means we're going to have another six months worth of winter. And there's something about that story that makes me chuckle every, every time I see a woodchuck or think about Groundhog's Day. And it's this sort of blending of what the holidays are all about, or the blending of truth. And we sort of have pieces that we kind of meld together and stuff like that. Well, there's, there's something about that in our lesson today when we think about Mark chapter 12, 4, verses 21 to 25. And the scripture is going to give to us, through the teaching of Jesus Christ, three rapid-fire parables. And these rapid-fire parables are all going to be very similar from the standpoint of what the lesson's all about. When you think about parables, don't get so wrapped up in trying to figure out what's all, what's, what are all the symbols about. Instead, just think about one thing. What is the main thrust of the story? What's the main thrust of this unusual metaphorical presentation by Jesus Christ? So parables have one main theme, and after that, a lot of the details just support the metaphor. Not, or they are not necessarily part of all the lessons. So one of those is uh, this amazing lesson here that Jesus Christ gives with regard to the lamp on a stand. And Jesus Christ says these words. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or on a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. I'd like to suggest to you, as you think through this particular parable that we have just read, that there are three words that come to my mind that highlight themselves in this particular metaphorical study by Jesus. The lamp, the bowl, and the bed. And if you think about it from that standpoint, Christ is trying to bring to us a simple message. What is the intent of this lamp that is lit? And from that standpoint, too, the next thing he seems to suggest is that whenever there is a misuse of the lamp, like someone puts it under a bowl or someone puts it under a bed and it really isn't used for its intent, 
Jesus Christ seems to suggest that there is always a correction as a possibility. If someone is not doing what is obviously correct, putting a lamp under a bowl, putting a lamp under the bed, it can be an error that is corrected. It is correctable. The third thing that we have here is this amazing statement that Christ brings up on several occasions that is very haunting for any of us who are trying to read the word on a regular basis. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you capture the main sense of what Jesus Christ is saying? In a lot of ways, we can just suggest Christ is saying, what is the common sense understanding of what Jesus Christ has just said? So Christ is uh, suggesting here for us that use is something that has been taken with the obvious choice of a special kind of reward. If we use something according to its intent, God will give to us a reward. That seems to be the whole sense of what this particular parable is about. He switches now to a second parable that's given to us in Mark chapter 4. And again, these three rapid parables in succession have something very common in, uh, something common together. And here's this particular parable about the growing seed. And this is one that you should highlight because it's, it only appears in the gospel of Mark. So a lot of the things that we find in the four gospels, they share a common uh, appearance, but this particular parable here of the growing seed, it occurs only one time in the Gospels, and it only occurs here in the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus Christ then says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, notice those three words at the beginning of verse 28, all by itself. The soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. I like to suggest here that we observe several things. First, in this particular parable, there's three things that um, Mark seems to highlight as Jesus Christ is teaching this parable. And three parts are simply the seed, there's growth, and then there's harvest going to distill something that seems almost mysterious, complicated to us, make it very simple, distill what the highlights are. Then those three words that I mentioned to you in the reading that are very special, all by itself. It's almost like the word automatic. It's not so much that it's automatic, but it's without human intervention, without human involvement. Something happens in the process of growth that we have nothing to do with. We started off by planting it, We finish off by harvesting, but the process of the growth itself is a mystery that God handles without any intervention on man's part. Growth is a mystery that is a gift from God for our benefit. Two great parables so far, and we think about these particular ideas and these things we're going to try to wrap up and point to a great event that's about to ready to transpire. Three great parables. Now we notice a third parable that Jesus Christ gives to us here. And in verse 30 of chapter 4 of Mark, again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parables shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, 
Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using parables. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So in these three parables, Jesus Christ is giving truth to those who are willing to believe in who he is, but at the same time, because of this method, hiding truth from those who have already, in their spirit, rejected him. So from that particular perspective, Jesus Christ is going to move on to an amazing teaching moment when a particular event is based upon what he's taught in these three parables about growing, about understanding what growth is all about, about the intent when life is placed in us, Jesus Christ intends for that life to grow and produce fruit. So gentlemen, one of the hardest questions for us as men is is trying to figure out how in the world are we going to manage change in our life. We get so involved with the routine, we sort of blend everything together and forget about the distinctivenesses of the choices and a particular responsibility. Uh, My wife, Yvonne, is doing a long-term sub here at FBA, and so I commute into town with her, and I usually drop her off out on this road in front of the entrance to FBA, and she jumps out with all her stuff, and we say goodbye and have a nice day, and we pray for each other as we're leaving and departing, and I head over to the office. So today is Thursday, and on our way in, we're so sleepy and so tired and running on automatic, I, I just mentioned to her out loud, oh, don't forget to remind me, today is Thursday, so when we get to the church, I need to park the car and get out with you. Because if I drop you off and head over to the office, I'm in big trouble. So if we blend all of our days together without keeping them distinct, we run into trouble. At the same time, I've got some amazing responsibilities to open up the Word of God and teach a lot of people, not only here in Houston, but in a week and a half, I'm going to be going up to York, Pennsylvania, and I've got to preach four times in, in two days. And I've got to get all that ready before I get on the plane and leave. So everything is starting to blend together. And when I get a student who comes up and says, uh, Dr. Fong, that regarding that assignment, I said, okay, if I do this instead of that. And I'm there staring, sort of dumbfounded at the student. Who are you? Uh, what class are you talking about? <laughs> and and I've got I to sort these kinds of things out or I'm in big trouble. Christ is doing the same thing here. He's trying to say to us, there is an intent. When God put life in each of us, there is an intent. There is a purpose. If we misuse that purpose, if he lights a light in us representing life and we put it under a bowl, or he lights that lamp and we put it under the bed where the light has no ability to do anything good, we have made a major mistake. It can be correctable because we can take the lamp out from underneath the bowl, we can take the lamp out from underneath the bed and put it on its lampstand so the intent or the purpose of the lamp will shed light to wherever it is placed. God has given to each one of us who's been born again, who's accepted him as our personal savior, who's been given supernatural abilities and gifts, who've been given relationships. God wants us to be a light to all of them, the purpose and intent. He wants us to let that life shine so that we produce fruit. There's this natural growth that we don't have to do anything about it. God started something. God's going to allow us to be a part of the ending. In the process, he's allowing that growth to occur when fruit happens, because that's the amazing part of life. 
Gentlemen, if we do not see growth that's producing fruit in our life, something is terribly wrong. Because those three words, all by itself, automatic, not with my involvement, but with God's natural process of putting life in us that naturally grows and naturally will bear fruit. Can you imagine what it will be like if the guys here at Warrior's Heart, scattering after this is all over, going to wherever workplace it is, or hanging out with the people that we hang out, what an amazing, amazing result will occur when those people around us watch growth happen in us that is supernatural. Growth that happens in us that is going to bear fruit. That's going to attract people to Jesus Christ like flies to a light, like bugs to a light that's up on its stand. That's the whole point of what Christ is trying to say. And we stand back and we're amazed that this little seed of life that's been planted in us is going to grow so big that it's going to be the biggest plant, the biggest tree that anyone could ever possibly imagine coming from something so small as a mustard seed. So the hermeneutics behind this whole thing is very, very simple. The Christ is given to us what the kingdom or his rule in the lives of people where new life takes place and does an amazing transformation in the lives of individuals. And you guys are just like that. Every one of us is like that who have this new life inside of us. Birds that are here, everyone suggests, what in the world is that all about? Some people have a whole sermon on this particular verse in Scripture, and they say the birds are like Satan, and they come and they can snatch up anything that's going to cause growth. Some people say, no, 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 the birds are the Gentiles, because they're taking advantage of the nation of Israel sprouting up from something so small, and they can enjoy the shade and and the protection of the nation of Israel from a supernatural, eternal standpoint. All those things, it's It's not true. Don't believe any of those things. The scripture is trying to just make a simple point. Small seed grows in this big tree. It's so big that even the birds could find a place to perch in it. There's no meaning beyond that, I don't think, that what Christ is trying to say. Just a matter of comparison of size. Something so small, now something so big. That's what happens in our life when Jesus Christ invades it. He causes growth to happen. He causes fruit to happen. And people are going to be so amazed when they watch our lives simply in action because of what he's doing. Now, take those three parables and the concept. Intent, amazing growth, and the standpoint of God's doing it in us. Those three things are now in the minds of the disciples. Jesus Christ teaches in uh, in parables so that everyone hears those things. And then he pulls his disciples aside and explains to them the meaning of these particular parables. So now these disciples have this particular uh, process in their mind. They're understanding what Jesus Christ is saying. At least they're, they're, they're hearing it. Now Christ is going to take them on a field trip to put into practice what he has just taught them. If you keep that context in mind, this passage of Scripture is absolutely astounding because of this amazing truth. There is an uncomfortable intersection of life and its limits where that which is on fertile ground is a place where faith will grow. Faith grows naturally by God, but not only when we're comfortable. It comes at a place when we become uncomfortable because human beings are human beings, and especially guys are resistant to doing anything where 
they will like to step into an arena where they are no longer capable of controlling the situation. But God wants us to. Whenever he wants our faith to grow, he brings us to the limits of our capability, brings us to the limit of our expertise. So he strips away everything that we can do on our own. So we then turn with our total dependence on him. Intent, life, growth, fruitfulness. Those are the kinds of things that we are anticipating as we go into this great event. So we have this amazing story. And in this amazing story, evening came, and Jesus Christ says to these guys, uh, let's go over to the other side, referring to the lake. Now, I know some people think this, this is being picky, but I, I look at inspired scripture and I say, you know, God only allowed Mark to record a few things that Jesus said. I imagine Jesus said a few more things than this, but this is one of the things he said. Let's go over to the other side. Christ did not say, all right, disciples, uh, tell you what, let's, uh, let's go to the middle of the lake and we'll all drown and we'll go see the Father for eternity. Christ didn't say that. Here he says, before the disciples knew what was going on, let's go over to the other side. Now, if we keep that in mind about the event that's going to occur, that's something very special. Now, the scripture says to us, leaving the crowd in verse 36 behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Now, after Christ makes that amazing statement, let's go to the other side, the disciples now take over. And can you imagine the disciples? No problem, Jesus, we got this. You've been working hard. You relax. Uh, We're your servants. Uh, this This is our gig. We know how to get into a boat. We know how to sail a boat across the Sea of Galilee. We've been doing it all our lives. This is our area of expertise. We'll take care of you now. So they take Jesus Christ as he is, no extra preparation, no extra tools, no life, uh, no life jackets, no flotation devices, nothing. Just get in the boat and we'll ferry you across to the other side. Now, as they go through this particular event, the scriptures tell us that there were other boats But then in verse 37, a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, probably a bag with extra sails in it. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? All of a sudden, the experts who were in the area in the field of their profession who said, Jesus, we'll take you now, we'll we'll watch over you, this is our gig. They are now terrified. They went from confidence to fear in the area of their expertise. So keep that in mind as we look at this particular story as it unfolds. Evening has come. They've had this great lesson. What's the intent of life in us? God puts that life there, has a life of its own. We don't do anything about it. God manages that life in us to develop, to grow, and to bear fruit. Now Jesus Christ is going to put these guys in a life lesson so that they understand what Christ has just taught them through parables. Christ says, let's go to the other side, and they leave the crowd behind because this is a lesson that Christ wants to give specifically to his disciples. It is a specifically tailor-made lesson for his disciples, for any of us who are a follower of Christ, who want to learn how to grow in faith. It's not what we do. It's not what we control. It's what God brings us to at the limits where we finally let go and realize, man, this is the area of my expertise. I don't know what to do now. 
suddenly I'm helpless, and fear enters in where we as human beings have suddenly realized that our ability and expertise are insufficient for the circumstances that surround us. It's at that point where faith can grow. Gentlemen, hear that lesson. It's at the point where our expertise and confidence are found wanting. It's at that point where Christ brings his disciples and now teaches them. This is where faith takes over. Because before, when you are confident in what you could do, you would never hear this lesson. God grows our faith during hard times. That is a path to grow stronger. I have a really good friend. We've, we've been buddies for, for ages. Uh, Keith is uh, one of those guys who has a, a, a body that's shaped like an hourglass from the shoulders to the waist down to his very powerful quads. Most of us, our body shape is like a pear. You start off with very small and you just spread as, as you go in the direction of gravity. So Keith, Keith was a, a bodybuilder. He said, hey, Bruce, you want to you come lifting with me sometime? I said, well, I... I'm not a lifter. He said, oh, you could, you could do it. It'd be great. You, you would enjoy it. And I, I could use a real good buddy to help me uh, keep, keep going. So I said, oh, okay, sure. So we walk into the weight room, and there's these guys pumping iron. And then I kind of pu- puff up my chest, and I'm kind of walking around like I know what I'm doing. And, and I said, what are we going to do first? He says, well, let's, let's go over here to the bench press. That's sort of the, that's sort of the quintessential uh, measuring of all weights. And I said, sure, let's, let's do that. Well, let's do that. And... Uh, <laughs> We went over there, and he's, he's, he gets down on the bench, and he's got 45s on there. And he says, hey, why don't you add a, another 45 on each side? So he's got two 45-pound plates on either side, 90 pounds on either end, 180 pounds with a 45-pound bar. He says, yeah, let me, let me use this, and I'll warm up on this. I thought, man, this is pretty cool. And, man, he's just pumping this thing. It's going up and down so fast, I could hardly keep up with it. He says, okay, uh, I, I've done a rep. Your turn. He's like, how much do you want on there? I said, oh, I'll take a couple of those 45s off. And so there's 45 on each side, a 45-pound bar, and he helps me lift it up. And, man, you have never seen a barbell like that descend so quickly. <laughs> and, and the amazing thing, of course, is once it got down to its lowest level, which was across my chest, it did not want to move anymore. And uh, I says, you got to help me. So he lifts it up and puts it back on. He says, well, let's, let's start off with a, some, something a little bit less. He says, we'll try quarters. So he puts 25-pound weights on either side. And I said, yeah, I, 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 I can handle that. And, man, this thing goes up. And, man, it, it came down almost as fast as the 45s. And I said, man, I just started laughing so hard I couldn't move anything. And so he lifts it up, and he says, well, let's just try the bar. So he took all the weights off, and, man, I was there. Man, I did two of them. I mean, I did two. And the amazing thing is he was laughing, and I was laughing. He says, you haven't done this in a long time. I said, I have never done this. What do you mean in a long time? And so we started talking more and more about it, and he was telling me, yeah, we probably ought to start you off where you're comfortable. And he knows a lot about weightlifting and the weight training and and we were going through this whole process, and we did it every week, and we, we did it for months and months and months. And my goal was, was one day to, to do those 45 pounds on either side. And we got to that level, and it was so exciting. And I said, you know, every time we finish up for the next several days, I'm, I'm really sore. He said, that's because when you lift weights, you tear muscle. And after the muscles tear, God is amazing because then he rebuilds them. 
But when he rebuilds the torn muscles, they, they rebuild stronger than when they were before they were torn. I said, Keith, do you realize that's what's happening on the, on the Sea of Galilee when the disciples were brought to the point of their expertise, the limits of their expertise? Suddenly they realized they didn't know anymore. They couldn't do anymore. And the very field that they were good at, they were now about ready to drown. And fear took over where expertise and confidence ended. And it was at that point of helplessness that when they turned to Jesus Christ, suddenly their faith could grow. Now, gentlemen, this is a very scary lesson. Because if we want to grow in our faith, God is going to push us to that point of uncomfortableness when we don't have the ability or the confidence, the experience or the expertise to know what to do next. But that's exactly where God wants us to be so that we turn our attention to him and our dependence is totally rolled over into his hands. That's what's happening here as God grows the faith of his disciples. Here's a picture of a boat that they dug out of the Sea of Galilee called the Jesus Boat. They don't know if it was, but it was dug out of the Sea of Galilee. It was amazing that it was brought and it gives to us a sense of the size of a boat that was roughly aged about the time when Jesus went on the earth. But the the amazing thing about this boat, one of the amazing things that we learned from it, that I learned from it, is this boat shows us that in the back of the boat, the stern of the boat, there was a platform in which the, the people who sailed the boat could stand on top of the platform and underneath the platform, they could put all the bags with all the extra sails and all the extra rope and all the extra cargo. And this made so much sense because if this was a style of building of a boat they did in Jesus' day, then it makes sense that Jesus Christ was underneath that platform, and that's where he slept. After a long, busy, exhausting day of ministry, Christ was physically exhausted, so he's underneath that platform asleep. As a youngster in Sunday school, they send out those Sunday school papers you take home, and the artist's conception was Jesus Christ was laying in an open rowboat, sound asleep, and all this water was splashing on him, and he was still asleep. That never made sense to me as a kid. But once they discovered this boat, and there was a platform on the back of it, it made so much sense that Christ was laying probably on ropes above the water that was in the boat, head on top of one of those canvas bags with extra sails underneath the, the, the platform where the other sailors were trying to sail the boat, and Christ was not being splashed by the waves that came over the sides of the edge. So this horrible storm that took place, which is not uncommon in the Sea of Galilee because of the top topography of the, of the lake over on the east side, the, the, the elevation of the mountains that rise there, rise rapidly to about 7,000 feet. They have thermal inversions where the earth, uh, the, the air is, is in layers where there's hot air on the bottom, uh, the cold air on the top, and all of a sudden they switch places really quickly. And when they switch really quickly with what, what's called thermal inversions, all the air goes rushing down the, the ravines of the, these tall mountains on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they blow right across the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden, a lake that was once calm, almost instantaneously, it is turned turbulent. It's a really common thing that happens over there in the Sea of Galilee. So in this furious squall, the waves broke over the boat, Jesus was sleeping, and then he gets up because his disciples have reached that very small point of dependence that's about to take place of the fear because of their whole concept of what 
Jesus Christ would mean that they've never seen him in action where they have felt helpless before. Christ gets up instead of fighting the storm, rather than just getting the boat over to the shore, he just speaks to the wind and he speaks to the waves. And he rebukes them, tells them to be quiet and be calm. And they are. And the authority of Jesus Christ to control the circumstances that cause the fear and the panic in these disciples who were experts on the Sea of Galilee, that captured their attention. And he rebukes them for just one thing. Where is your faith? Now, gentlemen, when we walk into this world and we represent Jesus Christ, it is a phenomenal privilege for us to be among people who don't know things about eternity. But just let them watch spiritual growth happening in us, which occurs automatically, all by itself, to the point where we produce fruit, when we produce a harvest, when we can produce righteousness, when we can produce living, when we can produce loving. And when suddenly we feel helpless, we've never seen this before, we don't know what to say, and all of a sudden we feel like we're alone in the area of our expertise. That's when we turn to God and say, God, here I am. Grow my faith as I trust you with total dependence in a situation that I can't control because you are with me. And the life that you've given me has a a purpose. It has an intent. You will not let it snuff out. You're not that kind of God. So the life that you have placed in me, let faith now grow. We no longer have to be afraid when we're helpless. When we've come to the limits of our expertise and our ability, that's when we look forward to a point. God, help my faith in you grow. Because I don't know where else to go. I don't know where to turn. I don't have any good ideas. May your grace be sufficient for me. Faith successfully challenges fear. It takes us to the limit of our expertise to grow our faith. Makes us realize that fear is always counterproductive to faith. Faith and fear cannot coexist together. One always supplants the other. Faith and fear are on the opposite ends of a continuum that God wants us to understand. Makes us decide if we will choose Jesus exclusively. Choose him and him alone. Hope you have a great time on your table talk. Think deeply about the lesson for today. We are men who don't like to admit when we feel helpless, when we have nowhere else to turn, when suddenly our expertise is not going to be the answer to the people who are around us. That's exactly where God wants to take us, to grow our faith in him. Have a great table talk, guys. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.